That's one thing that I learned within the first two weeks of my job is that you are going to get rejected all the time. And so what? You just keep plugging away, never take no for an answer. And if they say no, try again six months later. Somebody gets rid of you and you know you're doing a good job. You just have to understand that it's not you. It's that the timing's not right and that they don't have the funding. Well, I would say one piece of advice that I would just love to give your best investment would be to get a service like we sent out mailings of a sample of these veneers through our mailing house and it was a little veneer and it got brushed through the FedEx I got a hundred different emails from the media being like I don't know what this is but these are chomped into like little tiny pieces this looks like a shattered tooth so we're sitting here promoting something that is unbreakable and it's completely shattered my name is Megan Bennett I'm 40 years old. I live in Kansas City. I am the CEO and president of Light Years Ahead. We are a boutique national PR firm. Basically, we focus on helping brands, small businesses, medium businesses, big businesses grow and build brand awareness so that consumers are wanting to buy their products based on editorial that's real. Why wouldn't anyone want to hire you? I have no idea. I think everybody should want to hire me. I mean, that's a great question. I think that the issues are is that there's some businesses that are very small and really small entrepreneurs, and they just don't have the budget to go outside of themselves. They have to do it themselves. I think that's one of the challenges is we're always working with entrepreneurs and small businesses, and we think it's the most meaningful because we can really make difference and help companies go from small unknowns into household names. But with that said, many of the small companies are working really limited budgets and carving out space in their budgets for PR can sometimes be difficult, even if they want to implement it. Many times, though, we'll talk to a company and they're too small, and then we'll follow back up six months later and they're ready to roll. So it really just depends on the time, the climate and the situation. What is PR? Can you just explain what it means to you and maybe anyone who's listening on what PR is and how it could help them? Yes, absolutely. So PR stands for public relations. It's one of the tiers of marketing. The difference between PR and advertising is that public relations is where we take, as a publicist, we take products and we represent brands and we tell the story and we pitch the brands to the top media. And media means TV, internet, websites, blogs, magazines. And we pitch the products to them in a very provocative way that we tell the story so that they want to test the products. And then we send the media samples for free. We send them samples, they test the products, and then we do extensive follow-up. And I'm talking like stalking. I call myself a professional stalker. We follow up with the media, make sure that we find a way to get the product featured in an editorial. And when I say editorial, it means that like the Today Show, they would feature one of our brands in a segment where they're rounding up DIY spa products, one of the brands we represent. We just sent them the samples and we don't have to pay for it. So that's the difference between public relations and advertising. When you do advertising, you pay a media outlet for them to cover your brand. So say you're a men's grooming lifestyle brand and you want to be in Maxim, you want to be secure, definitely guaranteed that you're in there. Then you reach out to their advertorial department and then you have to pay. What we do as publicists is the brand would hire us and say, hey, Megan, we need you to get us into Maxim in an editorial. And so then we find different ways to reach out to the editors pitch the brand, get them to try the samples and write it up on their own based on their own opinions, just because they simply love the brand. And that's sort of the difference. Hopefully that I explain that where it makes sense. PR is a huge bang for your buck. You might spend 
$5,000 a month on a monthly PR retainer where we might get you 15 to 20 top media placements, but you might spend $5,000 that same month on one ad on one website that might not garner any brand awareness or any sales. Of course, the perfect combination is to do PR and advertising together. That sounds good. Thank you for breaking it down as easy as you could there, because it makes sense. Like every public relations firm, PR firm, if you will, do they kind of look at it the same way, what you're saying? So if anyone ever hears about a PR firm, now they know the difference between like that and advertising? I think a lot of people still don't understand the difference. It's interesting because my dad, who is an entrepreneur, and I've explained PR to him for years, and I just think he never really listened. <laughs> Seriously. He's one of those guys I joke that he'd take his coffee cup and put it in his disc holder in his computer 10 years ago. It's like, oh, is this a coffee cup holder? But when I explained it to him, he kept thinking that everything was paid for. The only way that it really works to explain to him in layman's terms is, is my family started a foundation. It's a national nonprofit. And I got them on the Today Show in this segment about veterans. After that, they made, I think, like $150,000 in donations from people just watching this segment, which we didn't pay for. It was just pure PR. That is the power of PR. And after that, now he completely understands. <laughs> Finally, I don't have to explain it. But most people don't understand it. Most people just don't get it until they've experienced what it can do for them. So everyone knows part of the reason we're doing this interview is if you go back to and listen to episode 155 or 157, those were two entrepreneur or two companies that you pitched to us to have on here. And I get a lot of pitches for people being on here. And honestly, a lot of them, I just don't want those people on here because they're usually kind of bullshit stories when I look at them versus 155, we're talking about KC Cattle Company. It was a veteran owned business. And 157 was the same thing. It was a CBD business. Again, I would say go back and listen to both of those if y'all get a chance, because those are two really great interviews. But yeah, y'all pitched them on me. I think you did a good job. I kind of told you what the difference was. It's a subtle difference, but all these pitches that I get, they're just paragraphs and paragraphs about the person. I'm like, I don't got time to read that shit. But y'all sent a picture of each person. And then actually it was a couple of pictures, which made it stand out, which sounds kind of crazy that only a picture or two would make it stand out, but it helps me visualize having them on or seeing their story. And they look like regular dudes that made me want to interview them. So that's, again, how we got in touch. Usually I'm proactive in trying to find people who aren't always pitching us, but I figured this would be a good opportunity for, again, you to explain the difference between advertising and PR. And so people understand that. Plus, they can actually see that it's actually working from your point of view because episode 155, he talked about actually a decent amount of how much y'all were successful in helping KC Cattle Company. Yeah, and I can kind of tell you about that. I would say the one thing that makes us stand out and for anybody that wants to self-promote or get a publicist, one of the main things that you need to do is have a very provocative subject line in any email that you send. Because yes, we call sometimes, but they don't want to talk on the phone. They want to email. So you have to make sure that the media clicks on what you sent. The other thing is, is they don't want to see a press release. They don't want you to attach a press release. They want you to send them a personal email that's a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs long with a link to whatever you're trying to promote and a provocative picture. And that is it. And if it doesn't work, if I send out a pitch and nobody responds, I just change the subject line and find something else that I think does resonate until it does work. The takeaway from PR is you can never take no for an answer. If somebody tells you no for one brand, pitch another one. Chances are you might be able to get another brand on national TV, even if they say no to one. So this specific case study is with Casey Cattle Company. It's a wonderful company founded by a veteran. He's a good friend of mine. They're based in Weston, Missouri, and they make Wagyu beef. And it's amazing. The nice thing about the Wagyu beef is that the content of the fat is way healthier. 
because there's so much fat in it. And so they have all these extra vitamins. Plus it tastes delicious. So last summer we were working with the brand and we've been working with them for six months. We got them in the New York Times, which was awesome. Got some sales there, got them on the Today Show over Christmas, got some really good sales. Over the summer, they started to pitch all these different barbecue stories and they came out with these Wagyu beef hot dogs. And I was like, we got to pitch these to the media. People are going to go berserk because a lot of people want beef hot dogs. There's Hebrew National, there's great brands, but this is Wagyu. So I reached out to Food and Wine to said, you've got to try these hot dogs. They're different than anything you've ever tasted. The editor was awesome. She said, send them to me. We sent them a big box. It cost a lot of money. Unfortunately, the box arrived. They didn't get it and it didn't say perishable. So we had to basically send another box. I talked to Patrick and I said, Patrick, we got to send another box. I know it's expensive, but this is worth it. If your hot dogs are as good as we think they are, this could just blow you out of the water. So we sent another box. Sure enough, two weeks later, and I had followed up with the editor and she said they tasted delicious. Two weeks later, and this is in the summer, I get a call from my client, Patrick, and he says, something just happened. We're getting all these sales. And I looked online and I said, the food and wine story came out. Well, they were voted the best beef hot dog out of, I think it was four or five different brands. The story went viral. It was syndicated. It was on Apple News. Within two weeks, they made a quarter of a million dollars just from this one hit. It was incredible. It was the most amazing case study besides having our foundation on the Today Show It's that we've ever had. And the sales just kept coming in and coming in. And then there's the issue of small business. How do you fill the orders? But he just did it with flying colors. And so that is a great case study of how PR can help drive sales. Most of the time with our clients, we tell them, if you're hiring us to make sales, you're barking up the wrong tree. Public relations is mainly for brand awareness, but many times it can drive sales if it's the right media hit. And I think that makes sense. And you, I guess you said initially, if you're starting off your company, maybe they don't have the budget for it, but this sounds like you're representing more like product-based companies that might be maybe a year or two into it. Or can you give us a better example of maybe who your general clients are? Yeah. I mean, it really depends. We work with some brands that are brand new and just launching with the media. So we work with many like indie skincare brands and it's a competitive category because there's so many different skincare companies, but we only take on the ones where there's a different USP. What's USP? Unique selling proposition. So for example, we work with one brand that features all clean ingredients. It's called My Shell Dermaceuticals. It's amazing. And it's been around. It's a veteran in the category of clean and really safe plant-based ingredients. And they've been around for years, but they we've been with them for over two years. So sometimes we work with companies that have been around and then they get acquired by a private equity firm that we've already been working with. Then we work with the new company. That happens a lot with us. Well, that seems like the ideal client for you, huh? It's the ideal client. I will say most of our clients stay with us for years. Now, other clients might be, we worked with a brand that was a supplement that's supposed to help you get through the crashes of coffee. And it was really cool. It's called Think New, but we did a launch campaign for three months only because they only had the budget to do three months. And so it really just depends, but we don't only work with products. We also work with people. We worked with many different experts. One of our clients now is amazing. He's a meditation and composer. He's a meditation expert and a composer. His name is Murray Hittery. And he has this awesome company called Mind Travel, where he does these like live to headphone silent hikes. It's really cool because right now in a climate like this, where people can't go outside, he has downloadable ones that you can do from your home. And we've garnered him a lot of coverage. He's done tours all across the United States where we pitch him regionally, where he does these silent walks. So we do work with experts too. And doctors, we've worked with dentists before. 
really anybody that has an interesting story. We've even worked with a rabbi. If you have a story, we'll take it on. What happens if they don't have a story? If they don't have a story, we discuss internally and we tell them, unfortunately, it's not going to work. But most of the time, there's a way to find a hook with almost everything. Yeah, make them do something illegal and then get arrested and then you can make that a hook or something of that nature. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> there you go. So it sounds like you have a variety of people, but again, your ideal client would be, sounds like a private equity firm that represents a lot of new companies or they get an influx of money. So they want to spend that money too and grow as quick as possible. Yes. Except for the only thing with private equity firms are is you work with them, but then they sell brands a lot. And so you either go with them to the new brands that they buy, or you work on the old brands until the old brands hire it in new people in-house. We've done it with so many different brands. So that's a great type of client. But another great client is just a hungry entrepreneur who is marketing savvy and wants to use these tools in conjunction with advertising and social media to grow their brand. There's no perfect client. I think the perfect client is somebody that is eager, wants to grow, but is also patient and realizes that it takes time to build brand awareness. It doesn't happen overnight. When I talked to those two guys, episode 155 and 157, we we're talking about Patrick there and Craig Henderson. I think they even mentioned maybe both of them that they had an interesting spin on their story. And they realized that too. I mean, maybe you emphasize that to those people as well. Cause actually I do the same thing with the podcast. It's like, if I talk to somebody and they don't have any interesting story, then it's no one's going to listen. And it's like, we got to find an angle that actually makes it interesting for everyone who's listening. Again, we'll make them successful as a good episode. Or again, with you, it's kind of the same thing because you need to angle it to have an interesting story to make the media run a story on them. This is 100% true. And I will say that in the past, we have worked with a few brands where the founders are unwilling to divulge any information about how they started the brand or why they started a brand, or there's no story. They're like, it has this ingredient. That's why we did it. This is a trendy ingredient. They don't do well. They just don't. We'll talk internally and say, you know what? This is just not going to work. And another thing is, and I'll tell this to all entrepreneurs of any kind of personal care products, you need to know what ingredients are in your product. Because sometimes I'll have the media asking me, is this clean? Is this natural? And if the client doesn't know what's in their own products, then there's a problem. You got to know what you're putting in your brand. This is business success 101 is just trying to figure out your competition. How do you differentiate yourself? So if you can't figure that out, like the PR firm's not going to be able to make it successful if you can't even figure out those easy topics, it would seem like. So exactly. Thank you for breaking up the PR versus advertising aspect and understanding that. How many actual like employees do you have in revenue? And if you can tell us about your locations, because I think you got a couple as well. Yeah, we are boutique sized or lean and mean for a reason. And we've stayed small throughout the year for a reason because we like the camaraderie that we have. There's some agencies that are really big and they'll hire you. And then you only talk to one person and you maybe talk to them once a month. We all handle every client together so that nobody gets burned out. And so we keep new ideas flowing. And so I would say that we have six people right now across the country, which is great because it helps us to keep our fingers on the pulse of the United States and what's going on in each different region. The founder of the company, who is my mentor that I started with 18 years ago, she's based in Los Angeles. And my business partner now is she's in Manhattan in New York. She does all of our desk sides and helps me on the PR side. And then we also have another publicist here in Kansas City. We have a creative writer that does all of our press materials and she's based in Fort Worth. And then we have a couple of other people that we work with, you know, as needed. So it is, it's a small company, but everybody talks to me. I always talk to the clients. I never just put somebody else on them. And I feel like they're my family. You got Los Angeles, New York. And you're in Kansas City? 
Yes. Okay. And is it anywhere else or just those are three locations? Yeah. Los Angeles, New York, Kansas City. And we have somebody in Fort Worth, but we're national. <laughs> we can understand. And we were even talking before you work from home, it seems like most of the time, or even if you don't or do, I think everyone now understands this type of business. It doesn't matter where they're located. It really doesn't. And I was going to tell you, my biggest challenge that I've had ever since I've done this business is when I decided to move to Kansas City because I was so worried about leaving my mentor, my boss. I worked out of her home office for eight years and that's how I got started. And she taught me everything I knew. When I decided to move, my husband and I were getting married and we wanted to buy a house and start a family. And we said, let's move from Kansas City. So we decided to move back. But I said, we're not moving back until I make sure that at least I have a job when we move back because one of us has to have a job in Kansas City. And so I talked to her and I said, listen, I guarantee you, if I take this business to Kansas City, we will talk just as much every day. I will bring us local business and I will help us expand. And she said, okay. And we did. Right after I moved back, I met with like one of the biggest beauty companies here in Kansas City. And within six months, they hired us for over five years until they were bought out by a private equity firm. So yeah, we can go back to that just one second before we do. If you're a business owner, chances are you're reevaluating the way you do business. Just like me, when I'm trying to convince you to join our Patreon membership. Anyhow, establishing your online presence is no longer optional. It's necessary. Pivoting quickly is hard enough but finding the people to make it happen can feel like a full-time job. Fiverr's freelancing platform helps you find the right talent to build your online presence fast. Finding the right freelancer can be frustrating and time-consuming, not to mention expensive. There are so many factors like how much will it cost and how can you be sure they'll even deliver? Fiverr lets you hire freelancers with proven track records and clear pricing so you're never in the dark. Whether it's building your first website or designing social graphics to celebrate years of business, Fiverr connects you with the talent you need to keep moving forward. I even made a hire today on Fiverr, and they were done with my project in less than three hours. Evolve, adapt, and grow your business with Fiverr. Fiverr offers meaningful resources to help SMBs transition into a quote-unquote new normal. They connect businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services. Graphic design, copywriting, web programming, filming, editing, voiceover, music, and more. Work with confidence. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. Know exactly what you're paying for up front. No hourly rates or negotiating. Payment is released to the freelancer once you approve the work. 24-7 customer service anytime you have an issue. Fiverr is here to help. Quality talent you can count on. Sellers have worked with influential brands including Google, Netflix, MIT, and PayPal. Review seller ratings, buyer feedback, and more to select the right freelancer based on your budget. Find your talent today at Fiverr. Dot com and receive 10% off at your first order using our code MILLIONAIRE. All the digital services you need are in one place at Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R dot com code MILLIONAIRE. Again, that's Fiverr dot com code MILLIONAIRE. And thank you Fiverr for supporting our podcast and our listeners for checking out these sponsors so we can keep bringing you these episodes. Again, to make sure everyone's on the same page, as far as like revenue or how many clients too do you have that you are working with? And then and we'll bring it back to how you even joined Light Years Ahead and how y'all got started. Yeah. So we have, I would say 13 clients right now, give or take, but it sort of goes between 10 and 15 on any given month. 
And then I did like what you're saying too. The only thing I was curious about the organization when you said multiple people might work on a certain company and I could see how it'd get boring maybe if someone's just on it all the time and you don't have different people coming in there. But organization wise, is it easy to keep track of that or when they're reaching out to clients? That's the only thing that I was a little bit confused about or how that would work if anyone was wondering how y'all work. Yeah, it's very easy because first of all, there's three of us that are doing all the pitching together and we're copied on everything together. And each week I might do one brand this week and next week I might assign it to my partner and say, you pitch this brand this week. And then we switch off. Then we do extensive follow-up. We talk to different media people, but they all know us and it just works. It keeps it so that it's not stale. We keep a running Google document um, of all the samples that we've shipped out between all of us and we color code it so we know who's sent what. And so that's how our follow-up works. And we keep end of the month reports that we update daily. And everybody knows who's doing what, who's pitching what, what bites that we've received. And we talk to each other via message probably 40 to 50 times a day. Yeah, you are a professional stalker. We can get into that too. I, I am. <laughs> so I imagine that, yeah, you're used to communicating. And it seems like, again, you've got to have a very thick head as far as taking rejection. You seem like you're the ultimate person that would have to take rejection time and time again, but not getting worried about that. Because it's a lot of people who are listening now, if they have a product or a business, it's, I feel like too many people get hurt or really just butt hurt in general about rejection. You probably have to deal with that at least 20, 30, maybe 100 times a day, it would seem like just if you're pitching something, depending on how much you're doing each day, but not worrying about rejection and keep persevering. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I learned within the first two weeks of my job is that you are going to get rejected all the time. And so what? You just keep plugging away, never take no for an answer. And if they say no, try again six months later. A lot of the time it's funny because this is one thing that gets us giggles during the day is if we get a really nasty response from the media, we send it between the three of us and we just start laughing about it. I never get upset. I say this, oh, look at this one. Look how much time that they put into this email. <laughs> and then once in a while, I'll get a super nasty email. Why would you ever think I'd try this brand? And then I talk to them more, fall on my sword and then pitch them another brand and then they feature it. At least they have some type of emotion versus apathetic. And when they give you no response, you're like, oh, you might spend maybe 100 emails to the same guy or whatever. And you never get a response. Maybe they're not there. But if at least you get someone angry, at least you get their energy flowing and maybe you can do something with it. Exactly. And I never get defensive either. When they write me back, I'm always really nice. I apologize. If it's really a crazy email, then I just ignore it, yeah, <laughs> you know ignore it and laugh about it for days. I do the same thing. <laughs> some of these podcast pitches or whatever. Some people come back negative. I've learned just to step away if I want to. I always want to press send. I know. I do it probably once a year. I probably send something that I shouldn't have. And it's even not even that negative, to be honest. I've always been pretty good about it as well. Maybe you were, it seems like. You just get used to it. You're like, okay, that doesn't hurt me at all. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. You get a thick skin and you realize, you know what? It doesn't matter. What really matters is the people that you really love, that you care about. They treat you well. And these people, this is just work. You can't take it personal. You just can't. So let's talk about how you were able to develop that thick skin. So you went to college and graduated 2001, and then you came out and you just started working with light years ahead right away. I actually worked for another firm first. It was a retail company that apparently I was supposed to be doing PR, but they ended up making me do shipping. It wasn't my thing. And I resigned from that. And I was 22. Okay. And where were you located? I was in Los Angeles, in West Los Angeles. So after college, I went to school at Skidmore in New York, upstate New York, moved to LA, did a bunch of internships in public relations, thought I wanted to do celebrity PR and realized I absolutely hated it. And I'd much rather deal with products than people. I put my application out there 
this lady calls me and she was telling me at the time she was my boss, Betty, who's the founder of the company. She revolutionized Rembrandt Oral Care and made it, made whitening a beauty necessity. And so that was her biggest client. I knew all about it because I used to fly and my mom would always bring me the little travel from the airplanes with the Rembrandt toothpaste. And so when I found out that was her brand, I was so excited. So I went to her house and I met with her. I don't know. We just clicked. It was crazy. We clicked. I left and I thought, this is it. The first thing she said to me when she called to hire me is she said, you should pay me for how much you're going to learn for this job. And we both started laughing. And I started out with a really small retainer working 20 hours a week. Within three weeks of working for her, she left and went to Bhutan for three weeks and said, Megan, I have this trip plan. You're going to have to handle everything. So I went to her house every day and I'm telling you, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I had to handle everything myself. And that's how I learned how to deal with crisis situation because she wasn't there. Is this Betty Light in Los Angeles? Yeah, her name's Betty Light. And I mean, she is like my mentor, my family. I've known her now. It's actually on the 20th. It was our 18 year reunion of working together. So I worked with her. She taught me everything and she really taught me to not let things get to me. When I first started working for her, things were very different. And so it was all about smiling and dialing, which you go, you call 50 people, you print out a list. Hi, you know, I'm calling to see if you want to try this toothpaste, blah, blah, blah. Most of the time they'd hang up or say, I don't have time for this. That is what really gave me the thick skin were those phone calls. But all it took was one nice editor from like Shape or Health Magazine saying, yeah, send me a sample. And it built my confidence up to realize that out of every 10 rejections, you're going to get one that's going to want to feature it. And that was my mantra. Just fast forwarding to what everyone understands now too, even though you're working with the founder, you are an owner of this business light years ahead now. Yes, now I am. And she is a strategic officer and helps consult, but she's still involved. Yeah, but this is perfect for anyone who's listening. It's a viewpoint of like, okay, if they go start with a smaller firm and whether it's a PR firm or something else that you weren't quote unquote the founder, but again, it doesn't really matter. Now you own part of this company as well, but it's always interesting just being okay enough that you're coming in as an intern and the lady was joking to you, Betty, that you should pay her to learn. It doesn't really matter how much you make in those first couple of years, as long as you're learning and trying to develop that thick skin, like you said. And just figuring things out because now we can go along the timeline here of how you're eventually able to become an owner here and grow into a successful business. Yeah. And so after I was there, I worked for her for eight years and my husband and I decided we were engaged and we were looking for houses. And we said, you know what? I'm from Kansas City. I said, let's move back to Kansas City. Okay. But you were in Los Angeles this whole time though? Yeah, I was in Los Angeles for nine years right after college. So from 22 until 31, I lived in Los Angeles. Okay. Now we can keep going. Cause I know you said there's an office in New York basically as well. So that's the reason I was just curious. So you went to college in New York and then you went to LA and then now you're going back to Kansas city where you're from. And when I moved to Kansas city, opened up the Midwest office. We also hired my business partner, Chloe, who is based in Manhattan. And so she is our New York office. I moved back to Kansas City and basically started doing what I was doing with Betty in Los Angeles, but here all by myself all day. And it really helped me to grow, to take on more responsibility, to take initiative and to have that security that I could do this. So after being here, now I've been here for 10 years in Kansas City, Chloe and I have taken over the company as of last July. It was the perfect timing. Both of my kids are in school. Well, not right now, but... <laughs> 
When you made that transition, though, I was curious, how much money were you actually making when you left Los Angeles and made sure that you're going to be successful at it? Because I have a feeling there might be a lot of turnover in PR. I have no idea. But again, like a sales position, it sounded like that you were getting paid on whether you're getting clients. If you didn't get any clients, then you weren't going to get paid, it seems. No, well, I worked for her and I basically had like a monthly amount that I made. When I came to Los Angeles, she kept me at the same retainer. It was great because to move from Los Angeles to the Midwest where the cost of living is much less, I felt like a pig in shit, you know? <laughs> and I wasn't making that much, by the way. I mean, I was still making under six figures at that time. Up till your 30s when you moved back to Kansas City? Yeah, and I still did for a while until we really helped to grow everything. It wasn't like into success where year one, you're making over 100K. No. Again, it takes time in the sales positions as well. But what was your work life like? You said you found a husband. Was he one of your clients or something? No, I met him online. Oh, wow. <laughs> we met in Los Angeles and he worked at insurance. We just fell in love and I don't know, it was like a random thing. And then we both decided that we wanted to move here and start a life and start a family. And so working from here, it's been my daily routine is really, it's set. I'm not one of those people that can't focus. This whole thing that's happened with the coronavirus and everything, it's been horrible for everybody. And of course, it's a horrible situation. But as far as my work habits or my daily routine, nothing has changed except for that there's two kids at home now, <laughs> being homeschooled by my husband. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, but I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What What's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money and, you know, I can do the math. When you moved back as well, originally your founder, Betty, did she have a home office the whole time as well? Yeah, she had a home office in the Hollywood Hills. So I used to go to the Hollywood Hills every day. Okay. And so when you moved back, you had your home office as well before your times with the home office and doing this full time, huh? Yes, this is my thing. And I love it. I would never trade it to go into an office. Even if I would make five times the amount, I wouldn't do it because this is where I'm the most comfortable, the most calm in my own environment. What did you learn before you even moved back to Kansas City so we can get an idea of your confidence when you told your founder, Betty, that she was going to actually, you said you were going to keep growing the business and not to worry, but you had to have some confidence. I mean, were you successful in, I guess, would you say before you ended up moving back? I was successful in, I realized at a very early stage that the only way to grow as a company is that you have to get new business constantly. And so that's where I got confident was reaching out to new clients, trying to bring in new business. And I brought in a few accounts before I moved. So I knew that I could do it. And that gave me the confidence when I moved back to say, all right, I can keep this going. I can help us grow. And I'm going to pitch the hell out of our company and get us as many cool clients as we can. That's kind of how it worked. How many pitches would you say you would do a day or a week? I'm just wondering what your ratio is because it seems hard if generally now you have 15 clients at max. I mean, have no idea how many you have to try to pitch in order to try to get one. We split it up. So maybe in a week, I will pitch six or seven clients throughout the week. Then Chloe will do maybe five and then Julia will do two or three or we'll switch it up. I usually do predominantly most of the pitching just because it's what I'm the best at. We all do it, but I always assign myself the most and I send out a weekly email every week and say, all right, this is what I'm going to work on. This is what you two are working on. 
And then if they say, well, I want to do this, we switch it around and every week we kind of switch it and it just really works. Well, I was going to say there's pitching the clients, but then after you actually get a client, then you got to pitch that client to these other newspapers or online or whatever as well. Yeah. When we're saying pitches, just so everyone doesn't get confused, there's pitching where you're trying to get the clients in. And then after you finally get the clients, pitching them to the media to try to get them exposure, if you will. When we say pitching to the media, when we start with a new client, I can explain it a little bit. We engage with them. We have a bunch of calls. And then basically, we just get started and write their press materials. Within three weeks of starting, we start pitching our client right away and trying to get into relevant stories. And we have so many contacts in so many different arenas like health, fitness, wellness, even cannabis, that we know all the different medias. So say we start with a new meditation expert. Well, I can immediately start reaching out to all my contacts on day one and saying, hey, we just started with this person. Are you interested in downloading this or learning more? So it's really actually fun for me getting a new client. I get the most excited because when you get those initial bites from the media, if I'm pitching a client and I hear from a producer of the Today Show that wants to try it, it's like a high. It's so exciting. And it makes the client so excited to know that something that they created is being tested by such a reputable media outlet. Do you enjoy that the most? Because it seemed like it would be like after you finally get someone, now you want to prove that you can actually do something for them when they're paying you. It seems like that'd be most exciting for me too. And you're saying the same thing for you. By far the most exciting is getting my clients placements and seeing the joy and excitement in them when they get it and they feel like it's building brand awareness or when they get sales. It's like a high. It really is. It's like a rush. It's crazy. And sometimes I get them daily. It was yesterday. There was a client on Bustle, which is like a huge website. And then we got another one on Pure Wow and Yahoo Finance. So it's exciting. It is. It's a rush. When you're actually going and finding these clients again, can you tell us how that has evolved, the clients that you service? You said, I wanted to bring up the professional stalker. And I know what you say you use a lot now, but just curious how that's evolved over time for you. Again, you said early on you used to do calls. No one does that anymore, it seems like. To find new business? Yeah, find new business. Yeah, I used to do calls. Then I moved to emails and sort of cold calling emails. And now, obviously, a lot of our business comes from referrals, which is awesome. That's a great way to get it. But I would say 40% of our new business comes from us reaching out to different brands that we research on Instagram. We message them on Instagram first and we send an email and then we just do follow up. And if they're interested, then we send them more information and we send them a link to all of the, like a whole brag book of all the great media placements that we've garnered for different clients and a deck with case studies. And then we have a call and if it works, they hire us. Yeah, I thought that was smart. So do you keep like a Google sheet or I'm just trying to think if someone's getting started and they're like, hey, I don't know if I can afford a PR firm right now, but even if they get some success with one of these Instagram tips or whatever you use to actually drum up business, I mean, how do you keep it organized? Because to me, from afar, I don't really use Instagram, but if I'm DMing everybody, I feel like I would just get lost and forget. Is there a strategy or system that you use to find these clients? Well, I go through and I look up different topics that I'm interested in or something that's topical that I think that people would want to buy. And then I reach out and I just go through my Instagram lists. If they're interested, they write me back. If they're not, then I wait three months and go back again and re-message them on Instagram. Again, if they're interested, they respond. If not, I wait another three months. It's like a cycle and it is easy to keep track of because on your Instagram, you can see all your messages. Another thing I do is, is I keep a running Google Doc, every marketing director's contact information that I have received that they've given to me. And I put it in a Google Doc so that every couple of months I can reach out. That makes sense with Instagram. You're saying if you don't really need a CRM, if you can scroll down all the way down your inbox and be three months, you're like, okay, boom, let me do it again. 
Exactly. You could literally cut and paste and just keep going through again. It's very simple. It's time consuming, but it's easy. If you have a good pitch, it's easy. It's time consuming, but that's what you have to do to make money. It's like, if you didn't do that, you're not going to be able to get clients and then not be able to be successful. So Exactly. So when I hear people in my business or in a business where they're contractors and they can't get work for something like this, I say, you can. It's in the numbers. I say that all the time. It's like dating. <laughs> it's true though. The more people you reach out to, it's just in the odds. If you reach out to a hundred people, you probably will get one client out of that. It's just the way it works. So if anyone's listening and let's say you're doing cold emails, you email 10 prospective clients, 10 is not enough at all. What do you think is going to happen? The chances of that happening are pretty low, but if then if you go a hundred, okay, now I'm, maybe I can get one. And then what happens if I did literally over one month reached a thousand people? Again, it's all in the numbers. So you just got to keep trying and not take any rejection just because someone says something negative or doesn't reply back. If you're going to let that get you down, then you're not going to be successful in business. Exactly. And that's another way for me to tell if somebody's a good publicist or not, because I can tell pretty quickly if somebody's got the gene, the, the stalker bug in them, because people that cry and get offended by rejection, this is just not meant for you. It's not. You've got to be somebody that laughs it off and just says, screw it. I'm going to contact their competitor. It's like, you got to just keep going. So over this time when you've kept going, is there any significant parts of your timeline here that you think maybe we could learn from the audience as far as maybe growing their business? And I know you said something about PR company, a good one versus a bad one. Maybe we can go over that as well. But before we do, is there anything significant that you think that we could learn from? To grow a business? Whether it's growing a business, even some of the hardest things that you've gone through or some of the highest things that we could learn from. And then at the end, we'll go over what to look for in a PR firm, if you will. I would say one thing that you always want to try to do is turn a failure into a success. So can I give you an example? That's exactly what I want. Thank you. That's what I was going to say. Please <laughs> give us examples because I hate when it's just the quotes. I'm like, okay. And then, yeah, give us an example. That's exactly what I wanted. So thank you. Okay. So basically, this is sort of an older story, but this is when I worked with a veneer company. It was actually the founder of Rembrandt started this huge veneer company. And veneers are basically like fake teeth, right? Or Yeah. It's basically like a layer that goes on top of your teeth that protects them. And so we were promoting these as thin as a contact lens, unbreakable, because that's they were supposed to be unbreakable. We sent out mailings of a sample of these veneers to like a thousand people through our mailing house. And it was a little veneer and it got crushed through the FedEx. I got a hundred different emails from the media being like, I don't know what this is, but these are chomped into like little tiny pieces. This looks like a shattered tooth. So we're sitting here promoting something that is unbreakable and it's completely shattered. It was promoted as unbreakable too? Yes. That's the bad part, you know. <laughs> because they had told us they're not going to chip. They last 20 years. So we're sending out a sample and it gets crushed in FedEx. And we'd sent it to so many editors and we were in trouble. And I was, oh my gosh, you know, this is when I was working with Betty and I didn't know what to do, but we decided let's just own up to it. Let's apologize to the media and tell the truth and say, you know what? They really are strong, but when you send them FedEx, they get crushed. And we literally fell on our sword and decided to send little chomping teeth that bounced up and down on their desks. We got so much coverage. You have no idea. I was crazy. Those little wind up teeth. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So you sent those afterwards. Did you have a message in it or anything clever? Yeah, we apologized and we said, these are strong. Sorry for the snafu. And we got a lot of coverage. People wanted to cover it. So I think that the media can be forgiving if you fall on your sword. If I hire people and they want to put blame on something else and not own up or people that work for me right now, it's just don't be putting blame on somebody else. Just own up and then it's so easy. 
Absolutely. And I'm always happy to take the blame for whatever if it comes to my clients, because that's what a publicist is for. We're not a punching bag, but we're the spokesperson for the brand. So that's one negative thing that we were able to turn into positive. But how about anything negative that some of the hardest things that you've had to go through with light years ahead as you eventually became an owner? I mean, obviously, that was a challenge. Were there any years where you just couldn't get anyone as a client or you wanted to quit PR or anything like that? I'll tell you, there have been some months throughout these 18 years where we were struggling to get new business. It was just slow or we had months where we did have to cut back because maybe we did lose some business. During those months, we just had to cut back on everything. We just got through it. I mean, really, when that happened, when the shit hit the fan and we lost business and everybody was nervous, we went out and we all aggressively, all of us went out and emailed like 100 people and messaged like 100 people a day. And within a few weeks, every single day, we had a new business call. And then within a couple months, we'd built back up our business and got five new clients. So it does happen. It's like you have to take these punches and realize and the other thing you can't do is take it personally. If somebody gets rid of you and you know you're doing a good job, you just have to understand that it's not you. It's that the timing's not right and that they don't have the funding. And then you have to say, you know what? It's okay. You move on and you just replace it. That's what you have to do. I think the main thing out of this is to never take anything personally and to continue to persevere because that is the main challenge of PR is continuing to get new business. I would say that one thing that's different about us than the huge firms is that I think our retention rate is a lot longer because we do give our clients so much attention. They don't feel we're just another number. So specifically when you're talking about when you were going low on clients or what years were that? Was that when there's a downturn in the economy or is there something else specifically that happened within the business that led to that? Because I'm just trying to figure out a timeline of when you're struggling and when you wanted, again, you persevered. So last year, last December, I don't know what happened, but we lost four clients at the end of the year. And it wasn't because of us. It's because they were out of budget. They run out of budget and they say, oh, we don't have the budget. We decided to put everything into advertising. And I would say that is the biggest challenge. So we were a little freaked out last year because we're like, okay, you know, we're finally doing well. We have all these clients and we'd had some great months. And all of a sudden, the next month it drops and you're like, wow, this is ghost town. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the climate. I think it had to do with the fact these were entrepreneurs. They ran out of budget. And they decided that they just couldn't afford it. And that is hard. It is a challenge. It's such a challenge that we deal with really is these entrepreneurs that we love to help and we really want them to grow. But some of these small companies that we're working with, their budgets are so limited and they're carving out a space. And sometimes they just run out of money for PR and they want that to be the only bullet that's going to save them. And unfortunately, you have to have a combination of things. Now, when we lost these clients, we were all a little freaked out. And I just said, you know what? We don't need to freak out. We're going to get new business. And so I aggressively reached out to so many people and so did my business partner. And it just worked. Right now, because of everything that's going on with the coronavirus too, we're doing heavy, intensive new biz outreach. And we've already had three calls this week, which is crazy because of the coronavirus. So what does that mean when you say heavy duty outreach, just so everyone gets an idea? Heavy duty outreach would be I'm going to reach out to 100 people every single day, 100 brands, 100 companies to see if they need PR. Not 10, not five, not, oh, I found two companies that were interesting today. No, 100. It's that aggressive. And it's not all at one time. I sort of break it out throughout the day. Maybe I'll be in bed at night, do it because it's pretty easy to do, but it's just something you have to commit yourself to. And it's the same thing with small business owners that are trying to do their own in-house PR. You just have to keep contacting the media over and over and over again until they listen. Four times at least is what it takes. 
Yeah, exactly. Again, with anyone who has a business, you have people that you're going to need to sell your product to or your services to. So again, I think you did a perfect job of state. That's what I was wondering. I'm like, how much is a lot? Some people, again, might think a lot might be 10 people in a day. But if you're going like 100 people in a day, I'm feeling it because when I did sales and real estate, there's some days I usually might wait till like a Thursday or Friday that week. But I mean, there's some days literally I'd send out to 250 prospects, literally people I did not even know. Yes. And then I'd follow up the next week again. Some of my good weeks, I might reach out to three or 400 people and no joke. And the reason was because I might spend a week or two before that where I started hiring people to help me. So I didn't have to do it. But at first I had to do this all where I would go through databases or try to find prospects and make a list of them and email them. And so once you're able to get that list, make sure you have a good curated list. And again, it seems like you kind of keep organized with Google Sheets or whatnot. To Yes. Once you find those initial people, your system is so easy to send a reply email or like you're saying, go through Instagram. After you message them once, go back all the way down. And how much easier is it? Copy, paste, copy, you know? It's so easy. This is kind of the method. This is what I do. So I go on Instagram. I have my pitch. I paste it in through the messages. Then I also go to contact them via email and send an email. If I hear back, then I send the pitch. If they're not interested, I put their first name in a spreadsheet, last name, email address, outlet. And I have a huge running spreadsheet. Like I said, I can blast like every three months to these people and it'll personalize everything for me. So it's a good system. It works. And of course, if anybody needs advice about it, I'm happy to help because right now I think everybody could use some help. Again, it's all in the systems and having an organized system because if you didn't have a system there too, it all go to shit. Basically, yep. if you just randomly would message people from time to time, maybe five random people every day and you didn't keep track at all, then that's going to be way harder versus again, if you have a strategy and a thought process and then you make sure you're organized about it. And then once you send that initial either email or Instagram message, or maybe it's a Twitter message or whatever it is, then it's so much easier to just follow up and reply. Make sure you just keep going and keep going and keep going at it, especially once times get tough, like as far as if you start having less clients. I mean, that's super motivating for me. That's always what made me go ahead and send out that extra maybe 100 emails that week or whatnot. So if you're in a situation in business right now and you have two choices, you're either just going to give up or you're going to keep persevering. Exactly. And I would say also to apply that to PR too. So if you're a brand and you're doing in-house PR and you don't have the budget, keep emailing the media. Go on Instagram, look up an editor that way. That's something I do as well. If I can't get a hold of them via email, I go on Instagram, start following them start pitching the products that way. You can do the same thing with your own brand. It works. Thank you for that tip. I think this isn't rocket science. It's just being able to actually put in the time and effort and just figure it out and just keep going at it. So over this time, personally, were there any hardships? I don't think we've really hit on too many that sounded too difficult so far in the growth of light years ahead here. I haven't really had any personal hardships. I mean, luckily, I feel really grateful. I mean, the most challenging thing that's happened to me personally as I was working is when I had my kids and went through maternity, I went a little bit crazy not working. I felt out of control because I wanted to follow up with all these leads. I took six weeks for both. It's weird to take maternity when you're at home by your computer. So I couldn't stop. Like I stopped, but I couldn't really stop. It was stressful because I loved being with my kids, but at the same time, I really wanted to help and take care of my clients. And I remember being kind of postpartum. I was kind of depressed. It was a rough time. It was. But then after six weeks, at least with my first daughter, who's eight, I remember once I started working again, I felt like myself again because I was back to my normal routine. Obviously, deciding that you want to take over a business is stressful and challenging and exciting at the same way, but it's so far, it's been an amazing experience. So what do you think about that group call? 
That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Can you tell us how that went through? Because I'm curious just as far as the conversation, how the owner might talk to you, because it's a service-based business and maybe someone, again, could imagine themselves doing this or maybe they want to get some ownership in the service type-based company. So could you tell us how this worked out for you guys and how you figured it out? Yeah. I mean, I've been working with Betty for so long that she's like family. And so for years, she's always said, when I'm ready to sort of take a step back, then we can figure out a way that you and Chloe can kind of take this over. And so we worked it out and we worked out a plan. And starting in July, we took over the company. And so that's kind of how it worked. I would say that the main thing is, is that if you have plans to take on something that you're already involved with, you want to make sure that it's with something you totally believe in, that you have a really great relationship with your partners. I mean, we're like family. So it was kind of a no brainer when she was ready to sort of take a step back. It was sort of intended ever since after year one, that's what was going to happen. Was that easy for Betty to step back and for y'all two to take over? Because I don't know if it's a different dynamic at that point or if it's not, if y'all were fighting over that. It was a very smooth transition because Betty and I have been working remotely now for years. We see each other at least once a year. Chloe and I have a great relationship. It went very smoothly because once we took over, I was already doing everything that I've been doing for years. There's really no change for me in what I'm doing. Our partnership works out great because Chloe is more of the numbers person and she handles more the financial and I'm more the creative. And Betty gives us advice with everything. So it actually has been even better than ever before. It's been the best decision, I think. I'm so thrilled with what we've done and it works. So I guess kind of wrapping things up here too, and appreciate you giving some insights for PR versus advertising, what people could do. Could you give us maybe a couple of mistakes that you see smaller companies do or any companies that don't have PR firm or maybe things that they should do as far as reaching out to the media? I think we've hit on it time and time again about being able to do it and not just taking no, but is there any maybe major mistakes that we should avoid if we're trying to do our own PR? Well, I would say one piece of advice that I would just love to give First of all, before we get into mistakes, your best investment would be to get a service like Cision where you buy media outlets. So it's pay a certain amount for the year and they give you all the editors, and producers and contacts at every national outlet, their email addresses. So that's one thing I would recommend to anybody who doesn't have the budget to do a monthly retainer, look in Cision and make the investment. Number two, as far as mistakes that I've seen people do, sometimes I've seen brands where they put all their money into Facebook ads or they spend all their money making these videos or these beautiful photos. And they're so obsessed with their Instagram account that they forget about the fact that they're trying to sell a brand. It's about the website and the branding and that you've got to promote it via PR. Nobody's going to want to buy your brand if they just see ads. So I think that an important thing is that you should always find a way to self-promote and to keep the story going. If you have one product, you've got to find a different spin on it. And that's a piece of advice I'd give to that I've seen brands kind of screw up on. If it's like a one hit wonder, you can't keep pitching the same thing. This was years ago, but we worked with this awesome brand that was silicone scar sheeting, gets rid of scars. We were pitching the same product for three years. Finally, we decided, guess what? It also helps get rid of wrinkles. So we pitched it to Mary Claire and it got into Mary Claire as a wrinkle reducer. Now, if you look on the market, there's like five different brands that are using silicone sheetings to get rid of pimples. So it's like, you know, you've got to find different ways to stand out. That's what I would say. Well, thank you again for giving us some advice and those tips there. As we're signing off here, do you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening here? My last words of wisdom are is just to hang in there, find what makes you unique 
and make that stand out in these tough times. And also, if anybody needs advice, I'm here. You can reach out to me. I'm happy to listen. How would they reach out to you? What's the best way? They can go to our website into the contact us, lightyearsahead.com. And there's a contact us information, or you can email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. Well, thank you for joining us, Megan. Thanks. I really wanted to like have a like a small membership where I can have a community because long term that's going to help everybody else out more. It's taking time. And so I think now I'm like, I'm trying to push it hard as far as trying to find guys like you or whatever to get in a Facebook group or at least jump on monthly calls. I'm just trying to do it through different mediums. So that way, hopefully people can connect. And so hopefully, you know, meet one another, if you will. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more. To be honest, like I, I would, I would have spent a lot more to, you know, not don't charge me more now, but, <laughs> but I, I would have spent a lot more. I mean, I, I feel like just, just some of these like meetup groups that I go to sometimes they charge like $50 a swing and, and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And, and I think, what did I spend? $15, I think, a month. I think you're selling it too cheap almost. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty. Mary said that she had the whole you know thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on. And now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here. But she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month that it already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. And uh, if, if I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? I'm recording this. Can I use that as a clip for the podcast, if you don't mind? Like, Yeah. God, yeah. So that was a kickoff call with one of our new members, Tyler, who just joined the group. He joined the group through his friend, Mary. So thank you both for being a part of it. It's free to join the Facebook group. So if you're on the fence, I don't know why you want to join. If it's free to join the Facebook group, that way you can ask questions. Hopefully we can answer any of your business questions there. But if you want to jump on the monthly calls, that's where it costs money. Plus, by becoming a member, you also get special episodes that other people don't get. And we're going to keep adding more perks, as I've said in the past. So hopefully that gives you a little preview and insight on like how much value we're actually getting from doing these monthly calls and give you an opportunity to go ahead and meet other people. We want to make you all active listeners and help you with your business and not just help you passively. So come on in, join our Facebook group. And if you want to jump on these monthly calls, become a member and you can find out more about both those options in the episode description below.